I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. We just had the immense pleasure of speaking with Sally Mann, author of the book The Bands With Me, tour 1964 to 1975. Sally was so much fun to chat with, and also things got real. Oh, yeah. They did. Yeah. We got to discuss so much of her including her relationships with musicians such as Frank Zappa, Richard Manuel, Alvin Lee, The Grateful Dead, and of course, Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, Sally also talks about her wedding to Spencer Dryden, being photographed by legends such as Baron Woolman and Henry Diltz, and just how magical the 60s were. She had me in that moment. Like, I wanted so bad to just time travel and hang out with her. I could really feel that from you. Yeah. While rock and roll may have been Sally's first great passion, she is now following another with her animal rescue shelter, which she will tell you all about and how to support her and her endeavors. Yeah, thank you so much to Sally for sharing your stories with us and our listeners, and make sure all of you head over to Amazon and buy her book, that, once again, The Bands With Me, tour 1964 to 1975. It's fantastic. Enjoy! 
So Sally, we want to thank you so much for talking with us today. Your book, The Bands With Me, tour 1964 to 1975. It was just such a joy to read. You have such a fantastic sense of humor and you're such a great storyteller and you have such incredible stories as well. Thank you for being with us today and thank you for writing that book. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate those kind words. I'm I'm just really grateful to have gotten the book out and that people seem to be enjoying it. It's a it's that's been uh, very rewarding. Yeah, it's amazing. We wanted to start by asking you about the G word. Your name has been attached to the word groupie in two really, really awesome ways. First, when you were featured in the 1969 Rolling Stone edition, Groupies and Other Women in Music. And then when the new writers of the Purple Sage wrote their song Groupie with you as the inspiration. You mentioned not exactly enjoying being associated with the word, though. And on our podcast, we talk a lot about the definition of groupie and how that's kind of shifted over the years. We were curious, what's your definition of the word? Was it already seen as a negative when you were in the scene? Or did you just find being labeled at all as something that was very limiting? You know, it's a it's a <laughs> it's a complicated question. I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be. But um, I, I mean, uh, honestly, I. I absolutely hate the term and i i don't like to be associated with it too much but over 50 years you know if you don't develop a sense of humor about these things um you know you're taking it too seriously um and the bottom line is you know i've been dining out on that rolling stone article for many many years so i'm not i'm not all that upset about it it's just um you know, and I always add the uh, caveat that once you marry the guy, you're not a groupie anymore. Um, yeah. And um, it's just like, I think, you know, I I don't like the part about it where, you know, there's a, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of the, the band right now, but they have that song with Connie and, you know, there, there were women who had definitely a different, who got, uh, the, the term got attached to kind of, behaviors of that were you know pretty promiscuous and i'm not saying that that you know pr promiscuity wasn't part of the 60s and 70s but uh you know sort of more like conquest kind of things um you know I, I i have to have sex with jimmy page because he's on my list and um you know that that just wasn't my life at all um and so i don't like for people to draw that kind of conclusion but you know I have been sort of out there, um, and, you know, the people who want to know anything about me, they already know about me, and um, they they kind of know that that wasn't my thing. And so, uh, you know, I've just come to sort of accept it, um, and, and now it's just kind of uh, humorous to me. Is there another way that you would have preferred to be labeled or just rather not be labeled at all? I'm not a big fan of labels, you know. I, you know, there are people tried to, you know, people have over the years and at the time tried to come up with alternate terms, you know, band-aids and all of that ridiculous stuff. But, um, you know, I thought of myself as a, you know, it's just like if you, you know, if your boyfriend is an accountant, you're going to know a lot of accountants, you know, uh, it doesn't, right. it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you know, a fiend for accountants, but 
Um, <laughs> I just, you know, I did, uh, you know, leave home to go be involved in the music scene and definitely sought out musicians. And But, you know, as my life sort of uh, became a little more coherent out in California, um, those are just the people that I knew, you know, that that was my my friends and uh you know so i like to uh you know i like to be a friend um um but you know the only uh you know i write about this in my book a little bit there was a just this ridiculous fiction book uh written ghost written by this uh woman in england called groupie and my picture of a painting of me was on the cover of it and once that happened it just uh, it sort of took on a life of its own you know it 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 really did become kind of comical Right. It's been so fascinating exploring this. And you know, Pamela DeBar, for example, who loves the word and us kind of reclaiming it, evaluating it. It's been really interesting to hear how people we speak to feel about it. And there's no correct response. You can hate it. You can love it. It's all good. And everybody has their own reason for liking or disliking the word. Well, you know, not very long ago, a few years back, the, the New York Times did a, a big um, sort of article uh, by Jim Farber on on the whole. It was sort of a uh, a redrafting, of, like take back the power kind of thing uh, that was uh, loosely associated with fashion and and the women and um, that were in that original Rolling Stone article. And you know, uh, there's just such a cultural interest in it now from a different perspective that it just. I mean, to be honest, I just, I don't really care. (laughs) You know, I'm 71 years old and I could care less what people think about it. But um, it's, it's, I don't think, you know, young people today have any concept of it. So it, it doesn't bother me at all. All right. Your passion for music and seeking out those who made it began very young. Where did that passion come from and what bands were you listening to growing up? The Beatles. I've just sort of been crazy about music ever since I can remember, um, you know, from being eight years old and watching Tab Hunter on the television. But, um, you know, the the life-changing event was, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and just the whole British invasion. And that whole thing was just cataclysmic, you know, just absolutely life-changing and, um, you know, just to the point that it's, it's it's hard to describe these days because there's not anything comparable. You know, I I don't think One Direction qualifies, you know. Um, but um, it just became, you know, to say it was an obsession was probably to say too little. But um, I, I would, you know, I can definitely pinpoint, a, you know, everything in my world changed when the Beatles came out. It's, it sounds like such a incredible time to have been alive and part of the music scene and everything like uh like you said there's just there's nothing today that can compare to something like that i mean i just i feel sorry for i I really do i mean because it's impossible to you know there was so much culturally going on that just was like a, a sort of a sea change in in people's lives with the war and vietnam and the uh, you know, just civil rights and the music, and it just, you know, it was it was just an incredibly exciting time to be a teenager, I mean, at least from my perspective. We feel sorry for ourselves, too. 
you know, there's just it's it's hard to think of people being. I mean, there's it's not to say that there's not just incredible music being made today, but there's not that great sort of. Um, you know, m- movement kind of thing, not movement in the sense of an organized movement, but, you know, that that huge energy that is just surging across um, the country. It, it, it was really something. And you were 16 when you had your first backstage experience with the Dave Clark Five. You were on a mission that night to not only get backstage, but to get Mike Smith. At the time, did you know that there were other like-minded women out there with that irresistible passion to get to the heart of the music? I didn't know anything. <laughs> I mean, I talk about a blind, a blind uh, uh, plot. I mean, and, and honestly, I didn't have a mission to to get Mike Smith. I, I uh, but I just, I didn't want to be. I, it was all sort of. Uh, it it wasn't very. Um, well thought out, <laughs> as you might can tell from my book. I mean, I just uh, there was just sort of a, something about it that I wanted to uh, be uh, more involved with it and screaming in some seat in a theater. You know, um, that that wasn't going to get it. I I definitely wanted to to meet these people that, that were making the music and and I mean they were. It was just an incredible attraction. It, it's it, as I say, it's very hard to describe, but it just extremely motivating. <laughs> you know? uh, it was like uh, having a mission, you know. I No, I, I, I wasn't aware of any, I didn't really think about it in, in those terms, you know. I sort of, you know, saw Pat, Patty Boyd in uh, A Hard Day's Night and thought, now that's that's somebody I would like to emulate. And, uh, you know, had had my, my grandmother was a professional seamstress and I would have her make uh, Patty Boyd like clothes and you know um it just I had to uh, be there you know I had to be in it yeah we know the feeling for sure you mentioned the clothing as well I just wanted to say uh one of the things I really enjoyed about your book was the detail you put in talking about all your outfits and everything you obviously really cared about fashion and that was such a fantastic time for fashion. So getting to read about details like that, that was really fantastic. I, I'm so glad you put those details in. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really, uh, um, it's hard to, it would hard, be hard to know uh, today because I pretty much dressed like a bag lady. I live on a farm, but I was, uh, you know, the clothes and uh, were, uh, you know, and that's something that um, is sort of part and partial of, the whole music scene at the time, I mean, Carnaby Row and Mary Quant and um, the Beatles' uh, uh, hair and, you know, people's hairdos and uh, Gene Shrimpton. It's just, you know, there's just nothing like that right now. It was just, um, I mean, you can't really count Kanye West's clothing line as comparable to what was going on on Carnaby Street, you know. And um, You mean uh, all that beige? People, <laughs> Uh, what is beige? Beige and grays and cream colored. It's she's, that's like his clothing, right? Is very muted colors. Oh, oh, oh! I thought she that was like the name of something. Oh, yeah, it was just um, you know, and, and mini skirts and boots and just all of the stuff was you know, beetle boots and the Rolling Stones clothes were just off the graph, and it was just uh, um, you know, the clothes were a huge part of it. 
Yeah, for sure. I kind of like what you said earlier about how you had no idea going in, which must like we think of it now as something that's probably refreshing because our generation is so overthought. Everything is so in our own heads, which create I think probably social media doesn't help with that sense of going out and saying I'm going to just go here to photograph this or to put it on my socials or things like that so it must have been nice to just not really have any kind of agenda or too many worries and just go and live in the moment well it was sort of a uh, it was the big unknown, you know. I mean, uh, it was a, everything was just absolutely brand new. I mean, just brand new. The rock and roll had just done this sea change, um, you know. When Dylan went electric and the Beatles came out, and uh, you know Jimi Hendrix, and I mean, none of that had had really happened before, and it was a huge change from. You know, from the progression from doo-wop to, uh, you know, to the kind of music that had uh, been popular in the 50s and Elvis Presley. And then all of a sudden that was just all out the window, um, at least for the time being. And um, it was just it was just so new. Everything was just and it was absolutely um, ours. You know, it was if you weren't in a certain age group, you didn't. You know, my older brothers and sisters just didn't get it, and my parents were like horrified. <laughs> you know, uh, um, so I mean that that was. And, and but to your uh, to the point that you made, you know, my biggest request. There are other people like uh, Pamela DeBar, uh, who wrote um, "I'm with the Band." You know, she was smart enough to carry a camera around, and um, I mean, it never even occurred to me. I because we were being photographed all the time and it just it never i my biggest regret is that i didn't have a little brownie camera in my purse and be um memorializing more of uh you know i don't have a picture of me with you know most of the people in my book and i that's a huge regret that i wish i had recorded more of it uh, at least uh photographically you know Understandable. Speaking of being photographed, you've been photographed by some incredible photographers like Byrne Woolman and another incredible photographer, Henry Diltz. Everyone's seen the iconic Woodstock photos of you with Jefferson Airplane side stage at Woodstock. What was it like? I don't know. I just kind of got used to it. Um, I... uh... You know, I blundered into the uh, situation with Barron. It was a complete fluke. Uh, my great friend, Karen uh, Seltenrick, who who had been involved with Paul Kantner, and we were running buddies in San Francisco, um, I think she Barron had lined her up for... Uh, this planned article in the Rolling Stone that, you know, that I didn't know anything about. And Karen just very casually one day said, hey, do you want to go have your picture taken over? The, um, uh, and, I mean, it was just that vague. And I said, oh, sure, why not, you know. And it turned out to be something that, you know, I'm dining out on 50 years later. Um, and uh, at the time, I don't think um, Rolling Stone, I don't think Jan knew uh that that issue was going to uh, be as significant as it turned out to be, you know, for uh, that was back when the Rolling Stone was still a, a newspaper format, you know, a fold out format. And um, they, uh, 
uh, it was the largest selling issue of the Rolling Stone for many years, and they it was so successful that Jan, you know, he knows how to make a dollar. Um, they immediately rushed a, a little paperback book into into print by Straight Arrow Press, and you know he capitalized on it um, to a significant degree. But nobody uh, saw that coming, really. You know that people would be so interested that way. Was being in that ma- that particular issue of that magazine life changing for you at all? Well, by the time it uh, it has been over time, uh, because you know, as I say, I just couldn't have ever guessed that people would care so much about uh, the girls and the in the issue. But uh, by the time there was a time delay between the time the pictures were. Uh, taken and we were interviewed uh, and the magazine came out and by the time it came out I was already with Spencer and uh, living at the airplane house and um, it it became a you know you have to understand Jefferson Airplane they're uh, it's like having six brothers you know they're just brutal (laughs) in their senses of humor and you know it just became a huge running joke and and then when the you know when my picture was uh, Barron's picture was stolen, and a painting of me uh, was put on that book groupie. It just became a huge. It was. It had become more of a sort of a joke kind of thing. You know, it was just. Um, it just took on a life of its own. But I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Henry Diltz because back in those days he was known as Tad, and he was a, a musician. Um, and he was uh, uh, a very good musician, and and uh, he was in the Modern Folk Quartet, and they played at the trip all the time. And um, you know, I just he had a camera around, and I just got, you know, he would take uh, pictures of everything, you know, and that was just that Tad just was always taking pictures, and I got so used to him taking my picture that, that by the time Woodstock came around, and he was the official photographer of Woodstock. Uh, he was just a, a, a absolute dear friend of mine, and he, he's just a uh, excellent human being. You know, he's just one of the best guys who's ever lived. That's another part of your book that was so amazing was all the photographs that are in it and so many that I'd never seen before either by these incredible photographers. Uh, I'm so glad you were able to get those photos and put them in your book. You know, it, it's these people were so generous. Every single one of those photographers contributed their work. And um, after the book was written and in production, uh, my book designer, who uh, wrote an incredible book on Warren Zevon, um, he's, his manager, uh, is also a photographer. And he just happened to, I don't even know how this happened. He was corresponding with some friend of his. And all of a sudden, the guy said, oh, you know what? I've got like hundreds of pictures of the dead. And he just said, you can have them all. And, you know, then we were struck with the, the task of like, actually having to narrow down you know these people are are wonderful human beings herbie green gave me everything and not uh very long ago maybe i don't remember what year but hurricane ike came through uh texas and i lost all of my stuff and all of these people have replaced photographs had them framed and sent to me i mean these people are are ace human beings just really really it was a huge gift and i'm so grateful to them wow that's amazing uh it makes sense so that they would want to be part of this book because it is so special and your stories are so fantastic 
You went on the road with many bands. I was curious what the touring experience was like for you. Do you have any standout memories? Were certain bands more fun to tour with than others? Well, um, they were all pretty much fun. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it, being on the road can be kind of grueling. Um, it, it's not... It's it's not something that I really think of as a lot of fun because it's it can be pretty exhausting. But you know, um, I mean, I love ten years after. Um, it, it, the the English bands were fun because they um, they were so. They, I mean, it's hard to think of now, but they were so young. These are just kids, and they were so stoked to be in America. And um, you know, I always say about the English English. Uh, people is the only thing they really want to do is be in the sun and you know they were so stoked to be in california and um you know nobody was uh, jaded back then and it was just like it was it was um, um really exciting so 10 years after was a lot of fun and um you know the new writers were a lot of fun and um um the jefferson airplane on the road were sort of more it was it's pretty business like we got to get to the next city and we got to get the gig done but you know i'm just it was i wouldn't have seen all of these cities that i've gotten to go to and getting to you know shop and and go to madison square garden and see the rolling stones and just stuff like that i mean i'm just really grateful that i got to do it yeah and speaking of 10 years after it was so awesome uh, I had no idea that you knew Alvin Lee, and you don't really hear his name pop up that often in uh, music history books for some reason, but I remember having such a huge crush on him since I was a teenager, especially after watching Woodstock. I mean, talk about an incredibly talented musician. It was so cool getting to read about your time with Alvin. Oh, he's he's a prince and you know the thing, about him, that, um, the thing about him that was so um in retrospect so you know he was like the least fucked up person that i know you know what i mean or i knew back then he he wasn't uh angry or you know he wasn't on heroin or you know he wasn't a drunk or, he was just this normal very uh even-tempered kind of guy and just kind of had a sunny disposition and uh, uh he was you know absolute joy to know and I, I, you know, and to this day, I cannot remember for the life of me how I met him, but I'm sure it was at Winterland or the Fillmore or something like that. And, um, yeah, I was absolutely crazy about him, just crazy about him. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Connect. 
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Oh, awesome. Who were some of your favorite bands to see live? Any standout concert memories? Now? Back then, back now? Then. Answer um, that however you would like, Sally. Wow. Um, you know, what a hard question. Um, yeah, it's the worst. All <laughs> of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, really all of them. Um, I just, uh, it, you know, it's a hard question to answer because uh, back then in my twenties, uh, you know, live music was just it was not only my life; it was my marriage, it was my job. Um, you know, so we, I, I rarely went to see somebody. Oh, let's just go down to the Fillmore and see somebody play. It would so happen that we would, you know, I'd have to say that in the early seventies when David Bowie. the one of the few people I can remember going somewhere to see was David Bowie and at Winterland, I think it was, or the Fillmore, and that was uh, phenomenal. You know, and you know, I danced on stage with bands, and so it's just it's hard for me to. Um, oh, I remember one special thing. Spencer and I actually did go uh, buy, uh, you know, get Bill Graham to give his ticket. We actually went to see Led Zeppelin um, one of the first times they came to America, and. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty cool, um, and you know we would get, uh, you know, doing, knowing Bill Graham is a very good thing to was a very good thing to have in your pocket because we'd call Bill and say, you know, we want to go see something, and um, that I'm trying to I just think, you know, and then the other thing this year, that year 1968 and 69 were the years of the festivals. And so you would go um, when the airplane was on the road. Um, that whole summer of uh, like '69 was just festival after festival after festival. And so all of these incredible acts would be on the bill. So you know you would you would see them. You know Sly and the Family Stone were the, one of the most incredible acts live in the world before he was all messed up on cocaine. You know um, so. Uh, it would just be part of the deal. You know, you'd just be on the road, and if you wanted to go early uh, to the show or get to the gig a little bit early, you could catch, you know, just about anybody you wanted to see. Yeah, and seeing all of these musicians and artists in their prime at their most creative, I can only imagine what an incredible energy and experience that must have been. It was It was. Um, it was something. <laughs> I gotta, t- I gotta tell you, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, and you know, um, also part of that is not just the big. Um, this was sort of right before 
uh, acts broke out to huge arenas. So even though a festival would have a, a huge crowd, I mean, not on the scale of Woodstock all the time, but there would be a lot of people, there was also just a huge music uh, scene in nightclubs. Um, I mean, and, you know, now that I think about it, you know, getting to see Cream at the Whiskey, I mean, that's a small venue, you know, um, every, and this this was every night, every single night of the week, the Whiskey and the Trip would have uh, national acts, and, you know, it had to have a dance floor, and it's not like today where you go, you know, see the Jonas Brothers with 70,000 people and you're in the nosebleed seats. You know, you could go down to the trip and, you know, it's an intimate club and they'd have uh, huge acts, the birds and um, people like that. So uh, it was a much more intimate kind of thing and much more, and, you know, this whole thing about security, I mean, they had some security, but it's not like today. I mean, if you wanted to meet somebody and you were determined, you could probably pull it off if you were halfway decent looking, you know. I mean, it was just a much more open access kind of thing. Uh, People talk to their fans a little more and, um, you know, you could could meet whoever you wanted to meet if you tried hard enough. Right, yeah. Like Link said, we can only imagine. So it's nice to speak with you and live a little bit vicariously through these incredible women that we've been talking to. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's laughable now, but when when I think about it, probably the heaviest security in existence in you know 1971 or 72 was the Grateful Dead roadies. I mean, you know, I mean that's that's how close you know the the association with the bands was. I mean, their road crew or or like you know at Winterland, Bill Graham had security, but you know, I mean, everybody knew you. You know, if you couldn't get in the back door at Winterland, try harder. We've mentioned Spencer a couple of times, so we want to ask about your unique gift-giving abilities. You talk in the book about the boa constrictor that you bought for him. Oh, Lord. What a, <laughs> what a stupid, stupid person that was. Yeah. Yes, the snake. Uh, somebody recently posted some pictures of, on Facebook of the airplane on the road, um, and Yorma had a boa constrictor, and somebody actually wrote and asked me if that was the same snake, and I'm pretty sure that he didn't travel. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, stupid. I, you know, just one of those, I'm not exactly known for my thinking things through ability, and uh, I just on the spur of the moment bought, spent, it was our first, the first Christmas that I would have been his sort of girlfriend, you know, his consort, and um, I wanted to, get something exceptional. So I happened to stumble across this boa constrictor and thought, well, that's certainly going to be unique and my best idea ever. So, yeah, we had the the boa constrictor national velvet and, oh, poor Spencer. Um, I I had to live that down. (laughs) And can we talk about your wedding for a minute? It sounded like the most 60s kind of rock and roll dream ever. Oh God! It was well. It 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 would have been. Uh, it was a little overshadowed by the fact that I was involved in a custody uh, dispute with my. Uh, I had a a little boy at the time, and and uh, uh, his father and I were disagreeing about custody. But uh, and it was in litigation, and so it, in those days, 
you wanted to be married if you were in a, a situation like that. And so there was a little bit of a rush to it. And plus, we had just gotten off the road. So the thing was just thrown together, like, completely within a matter of days. You know, back then, people just, uh, um, you know, it, it just came together. The airplane, you know, the airplane had a pretty big staff at the, by those in those days. And um, so I had um, a lot of help. But, I mean, I literally, I don't you know, remember doing, you know, when I got married the second time, I the planning took almost a year. This took about four days, and um, somehow we got Mountain Girl to do the catering, and, you know, I got a dress just a few days before and, and changed it up a little bit, and it, it, you know, we just put out the word. Uh, the airplane house was kind of a place where people uh, would come, and, you know, we just put out the word that there's free food, and, and you know, people show up, so... Um, it, it it just seems that in my memory it was such a whirlwind kind of thing, um, but it was there's just moments of it that were just um, uh, mind-boggling. Like you know, I write uh, in great deal about Paul Cantner and who um, you know is an absolute treasured friend of mine, and um, he's just crazy, crazy, crazy. And uh, Grace was my maid of honor, and it was just it was an incredible day. It was it was a um, it was really good and kind of, um, you know, uh, it was a great day. Yeah, and not many people can say Baron Woolman was their wedding photographer. That's true. And, you know, um, it was a surprise to me during the course of writing the book, you know, um, and doing research and trying to remember who said what to whom and that kind of thing. Um, you know, video surfaced of the day. And I didn't know that Baron had a video and, uh, you know, it uh, we later found that Marty Ballin had taken a lot of video, and so we were able to get stills, and uh, that was pretty. It, it's great to have uh, have those memories of it. We've talked about Spencer. You've also had friendships and relationships with some of music's most talented other musicians. A few of the other more fascinating ones: Frank Zappa, for instance, Phil Spector. You knew Bob Dylan. Did you ever get to witness their creative process at all? There's a real mythology around these men. What do you think would surprise listeners most about them? I would say uh, probably mostly Frank. Uh, Frank Zappa, you know, I was uh, incredibly close to him. And and, um, at the time, the Mothers mothers of Invention were were really happening but um you know he he uh i mean to call him a genius is just it's such a trite word but he just uh everything about him was a creative process i mean from his hair to his clothes to where he lived and how he lived and how he talked and uh he just was one of those people that was um could not be creative and um you know so we uh, you know go into his gigs and um he was kind of a maestro, you know, he's very, uh, uh, he controlled every single thing about the, his music and he tuned their instruments. He, he, you know, he, he later morphed all these things out into a a bigger sort of orchestra kind of thing. But in those days, the mothers was a small band and very organic, uh, the way things came about. But, and, and, you know, uh, with the airplane who are also like 
insanely creative. They had the huge luxury of, it seems crazy now when you think about it in today's terms of cost, but in those days it wasn't unusual for a band to go into the studio to record an album without a single song written. You know, they would use the studio to create and, uh, you know, it was just absolute huge luxury that, you know, record labels would never stand for it today. But, you know, RCA would just, we'd just go into the studio and it'd be there for months. And so with the airplane, uh, you know, I was always down there. Uh, but it's also very isolating, you know, like maybe, uh, maybe it's, uh, the day that Yorma's going to let put down tracks, and so not everybody is there all the time together. But you know, Frank is the person in my mind that I think of um, in terms of just uh, you know being awestruck at, at his just that you can't even put a uh, a parameter on his talent because he. Uh, I mean, if, if you followed his career at all, you know that there were just no limits to what he could. Um, to his uh, sort of vision and, and ingenuity and weirdness and just everything about him was just kind of shimmery, you know. I never get sick of hearing stories about Frank Zappa from all of the different people that knew him. Everybody has something so fascinating to say, which is all pretty much uh, on the same wavelength of just what the the creativity that just... He, he, he couldn't know, not have, like you so, said. Makes him so unique, and right. he has the most valued trait in my book, and that is that he's hilariously funny. He's just hysterically funny, you know, and he's always putting on um, the establishment. You know, he, uh, you know, you you have to sort of be in on the joke, and um, he just. You know, a, a voracious talent, just hilarious, and he. All of these people share a common trait. You know, they don't uh, book fools uh, kindly. You know, they they're very, very, very intelligent. And this whole image of people like Motley Crue being all stupid and doped up and everything, that's that's not that doesn't apply to him. You know, or the airplane, or these people are are wildly brilliant you know and they don't they don't cotton the stupid people too much right you mentioned going into the studio so you also went into the studio with richard manuel who was supposed to record with joe cocker and oh, bob God. dylan <laughs> was also supposed to be present though unfortunately that collaboration never ended up happening that's true it uh it was a complete unmitigated disaster you know, it's sad. I mean, in retrospect, I have a hard time uh, talking about Richard because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, unwilling or uh, I like to talk about him, but it's just so sad because, um, I mean, I just, the fact that he killed himself is just, it, it, it's just something that I have never gotten over. I just can't bear it. And, uh, um, you know, he just was so in the grips of uh, alcoholism and uh, drug addiction that it just marred it just, you know, he's a person, and I mean, there's the annals of music history, there's a long list of people like this, but he's just somebody who whose talent was truly um, marred by his uh, drinking and drug addiction, you know, and, and the same with Joe Cocker, you know, and so you have these two massive drunks down there, um, and the, the, you know, Richard was drunk, and in those days, you know, he didn't go anywhere without a bottle of Grand Marnier, and, you know, 
Um, and sometimes he could maintain, and, uh, you know, when they were on the road, the band would make huge efforts to have him sober and uh, able to play. And But um, other times you just, uh, you know, his his disease was just uh, all he was about. And um, that was just one of the days when he was just drunk, you know. Just, mm-hmm. There's no... No pretty way to put it, and I mean, it, you know, it's it's uh, funny in a, in a sort of, or that's a funny anecdote, but it, it's sort of so sad when you um, think of, you know, what an incredible, you know, here's a great example, uh, if that had gone well. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard Richard's uh, collaboration with Van Morrison on a song called 4%, 4% Pantomime, that's, uh, I can't remember what album on, but when they were on, it's it just takes the top of your head off. Yeah. You know, it's just a mind-boggling piece of music. But, you know, and then you have him down there with Joe Cocker and they're falling off the piano bench. And so it's just these lost moments where it could have been, it could have been a, a, you know, a history-making session that was just a big, drunken, stupid um, deal, you know. It seems that so many musicians and other rock and roll related people, especially of that era, went through these addiction issues. Why do you think that is? Was it just that it was so easily accessible and something new and exciting? Do you think some of these artists felt it helped them with their creative process? Do you think so many um, of them? I think it's all of that, but I think it's a mistake to think that um, it's, isolated with musicians um, or with you know uh it's just that we know more about about those people yeah um, because their downfalls or their arrests or foibles or whatever were in the news but mm-hmm. uh you know it's just the the drug scene uh you know and, and um another thing is we just didn't know yeah you know uh we're young and stupid and the drug um you know, before the 60s, the, the drugs were sort of like isolated and really, you know, people you just thought of as bad people, you know, junkies. And um, I mean, I didn't, you know, about, you know, the extent of our knowledge about hard drugs was probably William Burroughs, you know. I mean, it just wasn't um, a, a part of most people's lives. And, uh, uh, you know, people just were getting exposed to new things without really knowing um uh, whether uh, you know how that m- might turn out but but you know alcohol is is uh you know one of those drugs you you know i believe that you're genetically uh, uh disposed to it and you know um if you drink too much alcohol you become an alcoholic and uh but i think that yes it 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 is it can i don't think it's necessarily most people i know that are creative that um, drink and use drugs have come to believe that it it does not that big of a help. I mm-hmm. I know there's exceptions to that, but you know, I'm married for a very long time to a musician who smokes a lot of weed, and he he now thinks that playing on weed is 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 not the help he once thought it was. You know, you just you get um, some perspective on on the role, uh, but but at the time it just. Um, I mean, we we had no clue of the the road we were going down, and I mean, I write about in the book that in San Francisco, uh, hard drugs, except uh, in some sort of enclaves, hadn't really. And you have to understand, 
the toll had not been taken at this time. People had not made, paid the horrible prices uh, that they would eventually pay. You know, Grace hadn't, um, uh, you know, publicly embarrassed herself in Germany. Uh, you know, we hadn't paid the price yet. Um, and, you know, when you're young, you can do a lot of these things with impunity. Um, but, I mean, if you use heroin, eventually you're going to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're going to become addicted to it if you use it uh, enough. And um, uh, it, it's a it's a complicated thing. And, and I find as an old, you know, old person, I'm I don't look too favorably. Uh, I'm not uh, romanticizing. Um, it, it irks the hell out of me uh, to. Uh, like on Facebook, you know, people who weren't involved, you know, they think, oh, oh, it must have been so great to get high. And, you know, I mean, yeah, to some extent, but, um, you know, in retrospect, it, the cost, the price was too high. You know, we paid the price. There's too many dead people. You know, when Tom Petty dies of an overdose, an accidental overdose in his 60s, the price is too high, you know. Definitely. I'm not a, I'm not a fan. Yeah, a lot of that is absolutely devastating thank you for um speaking about that we really appreciate it one is it's quite disturbing you know i mean um you know i I mean just every week somebody you know it's just awful you know chris cornell and i mean you don't the bad thing about about this issue is that you don't you don't just get to count oh well so-and-so died of an overdose so he must have been an addict or you know uh, he ingested alcohol with pills like Jimmy did, and he died accidentally. The, the toll is so much greater. All the destroyed families and, uh, you know, the the lost work and lost music and um, the misery of addiction. And, and, you know, it's just the price, uh, uh, you know, was too high. It was way too high. Yeah, and the Opioid crisis is called a crisis for a reason, and we know what's happening with Big Pharma, and I think that we're all just more aware, too, of how people are given prescription medication, how it can easily get abused, and then how it can just spiral into these kinds right, of things right. and lose yeah. a lot of yeah, we, loved ones. We just didn't and... know anything. I mean, we didn't even know, you know, people didn't even think anything about smoking smoking grass when you were pregnant. And, you know, there was just no clue um, because there was no data on anything like that. And, uh, you know, you didn't, and you have to, a huge factor in those days was this uh, generation gap. You know, you didn't believe anything, you know, the the, the noise coming out of grown-ups and uh, the establishment was so ridiculous, you know, that you were going to get addicted to marijuana if you smoked a joint. We all knew that was crap. And so you just tended to um, discount anything like that. You didn't believe it. You know, the it was so reactionary, you know, that if you, you know, people believed you, you know, you, you know, reefer madness, that kind of thing. And so people didn't listen to any of that. You know, it was just they didn't know what they were talking about. Um, and so you had that hysteria amongst the grown-ups and the straight people, and that overreaction caused, you know, uh, people to probably ignore some, maybe some good information that would have been helpful to get through. Right. 
just to wrap up about speaking about your book a little bit more, one of the par- the aspects that we really enjoyed was you sharing stories about some other rock and roll women that you knew. There were names that we're familiar with, like Pamela Corson and Grace Slick, but then we got to learn a little bit about other women like Diane Gardner, Frankie Weir, Libby Titus. It's always amazing to learn about women who had a place in the industry and whose roles were just as important as the men and who were also backstage, yet so often their names are left out of the history books. Your female friendships obviously meant a lot to you. Are you still close with uh, these women? Well, um, Grace and I have been best friends for uh, over 50 years now. Um, um, She's, you know, always been a factor in my life. Um, But I'm sorry to say Diane is dead. I mean, uh, you know, she's another one we lost. Um, uh, Pamela um, is dead of an overdose. uh, Libby Titus is, uh, you know, it's a shame that more people don't know about her because she's an incredibly gifted um, inter- uh, singer. And uh, she's married to uh, one of the guys in Steely Dan. And Libby is one of those people who is sort of uh, known to uh, people who know about, you know, stuff. You know, she she's not a big huge celebrity in in the sense of uh you know uh lady gaga but um she people know who she is she's a great songwriter and um she just always manages to land in these situations that are incredibly cool and i mean that's because of she's so gifted but um you know she's more like a a supper club singer i don't um i haven't seen her i don't i I don't know her anymore but uh, she was an incredible friend to me when i was with richard and um kind of helped uh you know kind of pay that was a hard um sort of scene to break to come into straight off the Grateful Dead and um, they were very uh, cliquish and Libby made my life a lot easier um, and you know she's she's a very uh, just a, an incredibly talented yeah she's Amy Helms mom I don't know if you know Amy Helms Libby uh, Levon Helms daughter is an incredible musician and yeah uh, Libby is her mom yeah and I definitely should have read that as are you close with the women who are still around because yeah as you said some of them have uh, passed on but it's great to hear about your friendships and and uh, so thank you for sharing that you know I, I would say that you know one thing about the uh, that kind of thing sort of the survival of, of friendships over all of this uh, turmoil and upheaval and life changes is you know I'm um, um, incredibly tight with the surviving members of uh, Jefferson Airplane, but the most family-oriented um, situation that I'm aware of in the music business is definitely the Grateful Dead. Um, they, through all of their changes, you know, my friends on, uh, even though I'm out here in a very remote location in Texas, I'm still extremely, uh, you know, I count all the women I knew in the Grateful Dead, um, the photographers, and um, just the dead family is a big, big thing. You know, a lot of people, um, those people, you know, I still um, consider very close friends. And if I needed something, I'd call them up and ask them, you know. That's Um, so fantastic. So the Grateful Dead is very, very good at keeping that going, you know. That's so fantastic to hear, especially, yeah, because in your book, it really did 
sound like it was such a family. It, there, it was a great time. And, you know, I lucked out. I was at a, I happened to be, be uh, involved with the Grateful Dead and working for them at a time before um, the bad things started happening. You know, some bad things financially had happened to them, but, you know, they hadn't had people die and except for Pigpen. And, um, you know, uh, it just, you know, things started to, the, the body count started to mount up as the years went on. And, um, you know, the time that I was there was a, a really golden time before all that was happening. Yeah. Uh, your book ends in 1975, which it ends so abruptly, and I just want to hear so many more of your stories. Uh, what were the 80s and 90s like? Did you still have a connection to music in that time? Well, I've always... Uh, I, I uh, came back to Texas, and I married uh, uh, a musician in uh, Houston uh, who actually was my boyfriend in high school, and that's a whole other... Um, just phenomenal story. We had gone together in high school, and our parents made us break up. Uh-huh. And uh, one day, in I think 1985, I happened to open the newspaper, and there was a big story about his band in the newspaper. And I went, "Wait a minute, I know that guy." And I just decided, I said, "You know, he was such a humble dude and such a, a great guy. I bet you his numbers in the phone book." And I just called him that day, and um, you know, we saw each other immediately, and ended up getting married. And um, so, um, yes, I, you know, I was involved in the music, uh, business here in Texas and, um, you know, I became a lawyer and, uh, had a lot of musicians for clients and, um, but, you know, it's just, it, it's it, I can't imagine my life without it. it. Now it's my sanity, you know, it's just, uh, iTunes is my lifeline, you know, and, uh, there's just so much great music out there and, and, um, it's, a, it's a, just a never ending gift. For sure. So rock and roll woman into a lawyer. Was law something you were always interested in? I was a little bit. Like uh, in the in the 60s, you know, there were a couple of lawyers in San Francisco, Mike Stepanian and Brian Rohan, who were the lawyers to the stars, you know, and all the dope lawyers. And, um, you know, uh, I used to joke with Mike that I wanted to be a lawyer, and he would sort of laugh and as he was, you know, getting us out of the next scrape and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I sort of blessed uh, scholastically, and I've always been um, super interested in academics and that kind of thing. And um, it just, and I'm also a person when I want something, I usually end up getting it. You know? Yeah, I'm very, deter- I'm very super determined. I'm, I can set a goal and get it. And I just, um, I got upset one day at a, a job I had. Uh, working in an art house and I just thought that the guy that owned it was insane and I didn't want to put up with his bullshit anymore and I I decided to go that day I went to enroll in a paralegal school and found out that I happened to be really good at it and uh, you know then I uh, sort of charted a course to get to law school and I won a a sort of a prestigious uh, like the domestic roads I became a Truman scholar and that sort of changed everything and that opened all the doors for me going to law school uh, on a full scholarship and um, uh, you know it was a pretty uh, a big turning point in my life. Wow congratulations that's incredible. You've, Thank you. A long time ago. You you've know? worn so many hats, as we said, rock and roll woman turned lawyer, and now you're immersed in another great passion of yours, which is rescuing animals. 
Yeah, I have a place out uh, in this. I don't even know how I ended up here. I'm out of the outskirts of Huntsville, Texas, in a, a rural area. I have eight acres, and I've, I've found this place. Uh, you know, a friend of mine suggested I come look at it, and I was looking for a place where I could have my horses, um, you know, be be uh, at home, and uh, ended up taking it. And I, I, because I'm home, you know, I can take in hardship, uh, adopt animals or animals with special needs you know i have a uh amputee dog i had a blind dog and you know i'm able to kind of take in animals that that other people might not think were so adoptable but you know i'm 100 percent dependent on uh donations for that i um uh you know i have a gofundme constantly going and constantly begging for money on online um to support them all but um it's super rewarding you know it's exhausting but it's 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 very rewarding have a horses and donkey and a donkey that was abandoned and you know cats and dogs um and you know they're just pretty much my family now i'm pretty isolated out here so they're my they're my my buds oh that's great to hear that's really inspiring sally is there anything that we didn't talk about or we didn't ask you that you'd like to mention or talk about before we say goodbye well, my friend uh, whose house I'm using, I have a tin roof at my house, so I calls really drop at my place. My friend just uh, walked in and said, did they ask you about Woodstock? And people usually are curious about that. But I think it's been documented so much that, that it, you know, uh, I don't know if you have any questions well, about that. Well, I know that. that you got sick at Woodstock, right? So you didn't get, it might not have been the nicest experience for you. It was, uh, you know, I recently listened to this podcast that Grace did, and she, it's so funny that we have just completely different views of it, and I tend to, Grace is a very unsentimental person, and I'm the opposite, but in, you know, retrospect, I, I'm i just still awestruck and uh, that it even came to pass, you know, and, um, but of course, she had to put up with it and then go perform, you know, hours a day after she was scheduled to go on. So her perspective is a lot different. But, uh, you know, I, I feel just like enormously blessed to have been there. You know, it was a, a cosmically, uh, I mean, flying in over that crowd and seeing 400,000 people in one place, um, it, nothing, I don't think anything will ever replace that vision sort of, of holy crap. Look at all, I mean, you know, back then we didn't know that there were, yeah, we knew there were lots of people who liked this kind of thing, but we didn't. It just the whole cultural anti-war and um, women's rights and civil rights and uh, all that sort of thing. We didn't know that there was that the movement really was that huge. You know, that a half a million people would come to some little you know hole in the wall hamlet in New York um, to see rock and roll music. It was um, it was a, a pretty life changing. You know, it was it was uh, fantastic. I thought you know. Yeah, I can't think of a more magical moment. And it must have really solidified in all of your minds, like, wow, like, we're part of something really special here. Like, something's really right. happening. It, definitely. And, and you know, and, and also, I think, you know, there were just so many facets to all of this. You know, we weren't very, we were, uh, the airplane was a pretty political band. But, you know, there's a whole other thing going on at the same time with people like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and, you know, a whole political thing, uh, stop the war uh, movements and, uh, you know, civil rights movements. I mean, just everything was in a 
sort of state of upheaval and and we what we thought would be a change for the better uh, of course that was long before we could envision somebody like donald trump coming along and ruining everything but um you know it, it uh just it, it it was just um everything was sort of fomenting you know the cold cultural uh organization of uh, structures were changing i i can't even again i can't even imagine the energy and what it must have been like to be part of so many different the 60s were just such a unbelievable time like there was just so much not just in music but in film in politics just everywhere you looked it was something new and exciting and you know so many things to be passionate about yeah definitely you know the, it, it, uh, I, I feel like I, if I could pick an era, you know, except for the Roaring Twenties, this would be the one that I, I'm, I'm glad I was young during it, you know. Well, we're so glad that you shared those stories with us. Thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, where can our listeners help support your uh, Rocket Ranch Rescue? Um, I usually, uh, the best... Uh, way to access that is I have a Facebook page that's just my name, Sally Man Romano, and I'm constantly posting. I use a little, uh, I have a diabetic pug named Squeezer, and I uh, use her campaign to raise money. I have other campaigns, but um, you know how there can be glitches, um, people have trouble donating or something. Her campaign seems to be absolutely error-free, and um, people can just scroll down my Facebook page and there's always a link to a to her GoFundMe um, uh, campaign, or also they can go on GoFundMe, the general site, and search for Rocket Ranch and look for Squeezer's campaign. Um, and you know, I have a the book has a Facebook page, the bands with me, and that people can just ask to join, or they just uh, anybody can message me that wants to, uh, and I'll uh, give them the link to buy the book. All right. Well, we'll definitely link all of that stuff up. Sally, thank all you. Right, thank you so much. So I really much. appreciate your time and your interest and and uh, uh thank you for for uh, uh caring. We care so so much and hearing it right from you, reading your book and loving it and being so immersed in it and living vicariously that way is one thing and then you getting to your neighbor's house and opening up your heart to us. We really appreciate it. And we're really happy that we can celebrate you in an episode. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you have a good time there out on the farm. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.